Good day, everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. I'd like to welcome you to my interview with Dmitry Orlov. Hello, Dmitry. Thanks for joining me today. Hello. Great to be on your show. So you're calling in from St. Petersburg, correct? That's right. I have not talked to someone in Russia before. You're my first. Well, hope, hope I'm not the last. Definitely. Prose, Poetry, and Purpose is recorded in the studios of Voice of Vashon. You can learn more about the show at voiceofvashon.org or visit my website, marchtwisdale.com, to catch up on shows you've missed. I also want to make sure everyone knows that the views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the board, staff, underwriters, or donors of Voice of Vashon. As an organization, VOV does not take political positions. We do support our show hosts and their guests in expressing their views as long as they're not obscene or hate-mongering. Thank you for listening. Okie doke. So, Dimitri, to get us started, how about you give our listeners a sense of who you are, what you do, and sort of ground yourself for us? Um, well, I was uh, I was born in St. Petersburg, which was Leningrad at the time. I uh, emigrated with my parents to the United States as a teenager. I completed my education as an engineer, and I worked for half a decade or a little more in high-energy physics as uh, as an engineer. Then I gave up on that and went into grad school for linguistics, got a linguistics degree. When the internet took off, I became a, a, an internet engineer and, and did e-commerce and internet security. And, uh, and then eventually I gave up on all of that and, and uh, bought a sailboat and sold everything and went sailing with my wife and, and became an author and a blogger. And that's what I've been ever since. Sort of a renaissance man in a way. Well, yes, I, I, I get bored easily, so I, I try, try to to vary things. And being an author and a blogger is great for me because I have a choice of what to write about, so I don't get bored. I can really relate to that. I have you on the show because I saw one of your books, which is called The Five Stages of Collapse, Survivor's Toolkit. I like this book for so many reasons. This is, what, your second or third book? Uh, this was my second book that I published through a natural publisher. I also tend to publish uh, a book of essays every year or so, um, which is based on, on what I on my blog posts. And I also publish books for other people. I have a little mini publishing house. So I, I do a lot of different things at the same time. But as far as uh, actual publications that went through an actual publishing house, this was the second one. Got and it. I have three so far. Got it. One of the things that I that caught my attention on the back cover, um, and this is a really this is a great book, folks. It it feels when you pick it up, when you look at it, especially the subtitle "Survivor's Toolkit." This is not a gloom and doom book, at least not to me. What I really liked about the back page is in the first paragraph it says, "In the five stages of collapse, Dmitry Orlov posits a taxonomy of collapse, suggesting that if the first three stages." financial, commercial, and political, are met with the appropriate personal and social transformations, then the worst consequences of social and cultural collapse can be avoided. Well, I tried to break down collapse as a, as a topic into categories that people could, could wrap their heads around. And also, I, uh, I, I posited a, a, a sort of canonical collapse cascade that starts with financial collapse. And uh, because of that, uh, supply chains break down and you have commercial collapse. And because of that, the tax base shrinks and tax receipts dwindle. Um, 
and what follows is uh, political collapse because governments can no longer pay their way and and uh, and lose power as a, as a result. And then what follows as a result of that is social collapse where um, various other fallback um, strategies that people have of taking care of themselves and each other start to fail. And once that runs its course, then the next thing that happens is social collapse where people actually stop resembling normal human beings and and, and revert to a semi-animalistic state, which is about as bad as it can possibly get. It usually doesn't follow that exact cascade because of various uh, coping mechanisms that, you know, politicians, you know, instead of succumbing to, uh, say, political collapse because of uh, uh, commerce going bad, they start a war or something like that. Right. They start commandeering resources. That's a typical response. There are various others. And sometimes in in some cases, as in the case of the United States, to a, a frightening extent, social and cultural collapse have largely run their course. So we have a very alienated uh, society where there isn't very much culture that binds people together outside of what they see on television. Um, and and uh, they absolutely depend on finance and, and, and commerce in order to basically keep body and soul together. Once they go, once those three go away, then they have nothing to fall back on. Right. So, um, gosh, I don't know if this is true in China and Russia, the other very large countries on the planet, but in the United States of America, so many people do not get outside the national borders, and they really tend to have this extremely narrow American view of the whole world. Do you agree? Yes, and, and they're not all comparable because we, yes, I agree, but they're not all comparable because we're really talking about different cultures and civilizations and, and different coping mechanisms. Um, and and uh, the one thing that makes the United States very interesting is that it is so transparent to the rest of the world and the rest of the world is so opaque to it. For instance, right. you cannot really figure out very much about Russia or China unless you uh, know Russian or Chinese because so little is available in translation. And even if it were, you would be missing the nuances. Whereas uh, Americans, they, they speak English. They hardly ever speak a foreign language. Mm -hmm. um, and everything they do is, is wide open on the Internet. Even uh, sort of plants that should probably be secret that the Pentagon has are published on the internet. It's the stupidest thing in the world. So yeah. basically Americans are these people who are like parading around naked in front of everyone, basically telegraphing every last thing they're about to do. Mm -hmm. um, and and they they can't tell what's going on in the rest going on in the rest of the world at all. Not that they're even that interested. And there's a, another problem, a uh, problem of dialect because People who speak English as their native language are sort of in a, a different, in a different league than people around the world who just treat English as this sort of denatured international goop. And uh, so, when when the Russians and the Chinese speak English together, it's not a language that is immediately understood by Americans, for instance. Mm. So there are a lot of language barriers even within English. It turns out. Oh, and and of course you figure that out when you did the linguistics work. I did, and, and also just from working with people from all over the world, um, 
you realize very quickly, for instance, working with Indians, that you, you basically have to learn Indian English or you won't get what they're saying. Mm-hmm. You won't be able to work with them effectively. Interesting. I have a second radio show. It's called Focus On, and I created it after traveling to Europe. I was really amazed at the things that came out of the mouths of people who lived in a successful socialist democracy. What was commonly stated by all of these people that I'm talking to in Denmark as just normal, when I would mention it to the people here in America, they would immediately say, oh, no, no, that's not possible. Oh, no, we can't do that. You don't step outside those national borders to see the world. You can't turn around and then see your own country from afar, and you miss a lot. That that is one problem. The other problem is that the conditioning, the the mind control, is very strong in the United States. Probably stronger than any country that I've that I've been to. People are really prevented from understanding what they're a product of. So to give you a concrete example, the reason that there is still uh, a bit of a middle class left in the United States, which is, by the way, not for long. It's mm-hmm. going away, as we're as we're seeing, as we're watching. Right. But the reason it exists at all is because of the October Revolution in Russia in 1917. That's what gave the plutocrats in the United States the impetus to create a middle class, because then they could compete with the Soviet Union. But once the Soviet Union went away. Uh, they, the plutocrats no longer had a reason to compete with anyone, which is why the middle class is going away. Now, people hear that and they wouldn't know what to say. Of, they, they, they've never heard that message before, and yet people around the world know that. Hmm. I have never heard that. Once you hear that, that, you can start processing history in a different way. Let's go ahead and touch in on your sailing experiences. This, as you said, is all a part of it. Oh, well, I, I was somewhat dissatisfied with my life and, and at the same time interested in sailing, interested in ocean sailing. Uh, I tried it a little bit, liked it, uh, bought a sailboat, found a sailboat I really liked, um, very unusual craft, and, and bought it, and then realized that uh, having a job uh, precluded me from going sailing. Oh, um, right, and right. I also realized that, yeah, because when the wind blows isn't really determined by any anyone's schedule. And and so I had that realization, and then I realized that I, c- I can live on, on, on the sailboat, so I don't really need an apartment. And then I realized that if I don't have a job and I, and I don't have an apartment, then I don't need a car. I can just bicycle. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got rid of a lot of stuff and just kept the sailboat. And then I realized that, well, you know, Boston is pretty dismal during wintertime, especially if you live on a boat. So then I took off sailing. And around that time, I also started working on my first book and uh, realized that just by being a, a, a writer, I could make maybe eventually enough money, provided I lived on a sailboat. Um, and so we did that for about 10 years. Um, and it, it worked out fairly well. So it, it was sort of a cascade. Well, yes, one realization led to another, but the basic realization I, that I had was something, there's, the, there's a thing that exists which I call the, the Iron Triangle, which consists of uh, house, car, and job, and you need each of them for the other two. Right. Um, 
So you need the house to recuperate from working. You need you need the car to get back and forth between um, uh, house and job, uh, and of course shopping along the way, and um, and you need the the job in order to pay for the for for the for all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you can't knock out any one piece of the iron triangle and and still stay afloat, as it were. But you can knock out all three at the same time, provided you have a sailboat. <laughs> or provided you have, I'm, I'm sure there's more than just sailboats out there as far as, because we can't have everyone on planet Earth living in a sailboat all of a sudden. So what about like, one of the things that has happened in the local Seattle area, there were all of the young people who were going to college, doing what they were supposed to do, going to college, getting their degree, the economic collapse of 2008 hit, and they ended up getting their degree not able to get a job, moving back home with mom and dad, who were not happy about it because mom and dad had a different worldview of what was going to happen. And then the next generation of kids coming behind them, they watched that happen. Well, yes, there are a couple of things to talk about here. First of all, just to put it into context, this is the slow death of the American middle class. The American middle class is going to go away completely. We're going to have a few rich people hiding behind fortified walls and compounds with private security, and then everybody else. And everybody else is not going to be middle class. They won't be able to afford to have children, et cetera, et cetera. They will be basically shacking up with each other until they're old, uh, provided they have a chance to grow old. And a lot of people in the United States don't won't have that chance because of drug abuse and alcoholism and depression. Um, that's kind of like the, the plan that everyone is on. And what I've tried to do is provide a few different ways of people, uh, for people to escape. For instance, uh, well, we'll talk about sailboats more if you like, but um, you're, you're right that it's not for everyone. But I've also published a book um, written by a friend of mine, um, Greg Jeffers, who, uh, who wrote a book called Prosperous Homesteading. Hmm. And it explains a different different plan for planning one's life as a young person, completely different from what society at large accepts from you, but very successfully practiced by a very prosperous and growing segment of the population in the United States who are mostly Anabaptist groups, uh, Hutterites, Mennonites, and Amish. And um, there, the the plan is as, as follows. You grow up, uh, you you learn reading, writing, and arithmetic, and that's the end of education because you've now learned everything you need to know in school. All the other learning is done outside of school by paying attention to what adults do. And the next thing you do is start working, ideally at the age of 14 or so. Now, when you're that young, there isn't really a problem with living with your parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, you, you aren't home much because you're working all the time, and you're not spending any money because you still get room and board. So every every last penny you get gets put away. And then once you've saved enough money to buy land, you buy land and you get married and you start having children because children are a workforce. And uh, they, once they're a little older, uh, they, they help you make the, the household and the homestead. That's a completely different uh, method of, of, of thriving that doesn't involve biological extinction. And not having children, deciding that you can't afford to have children, is biological extinction. 
that sounds like actually how most human beings throughout history have actually existed across the planet. And, and He's seeing what's happening in the United States, and he does not see any other way. Got it. Got it. And, and what was that again? It was um, prosperous homesteading? Prosperous homesteading. It did extremely well, and we're actually going to do a series. The next book is going to be on, on working with horses, because it turns out that if you uh, uh, go the tractor route, mm-hmm. you go broke. Tractors are unaffordable. Right. We have a new farm on the island. They just recently had, like, they were, you know, on the cover of the local newspaper, and they were using horses to do their plowing, and they were very excited about that. There, there are different ways, but generally a team of horses is, um, includes the, the, the driver. Right, right, of course, because they are trained to work specifically with those. I'm sure it's a very close relationship with those ponies. It is, it is, yes. Yeah, okay. Oh, well, that's great. Well, I'm going to make sure when, that we put some information out there about that book as well. Thank you. So you're publishing, you published it. You, you were saying you have, um, how does that work? You have your own publishing company? Well, I, I publish through Amazon, but I, I do the, the editing, the proofreading, the typesetting, and the rest of it. Excellent. Okay, brilliant. Okay, so now people in America don't know virtually anything about Russia. We basically live off of Hollywood movies giving us completely ridiculous theatrical viewpoints, or we listen to this awful corporate media that people somehow think is giving us valuable information. So um, Russia right now, Russia historically, then you had the Soviet Union, and now we have Russia post-Soviet Union. You talk about that in your book. To me, it almost seems as if it's important for us to be paying attention to the fact that millions of people living in Russia went through essentially a very intense cultural, political, financial collapse and came out of it the other side. What are your thoughts about what we can learn from what happened in Russia? Well, uh, the first thing to understand uh, is that uh, Russian history is um, all there big in spite of um, just very large disasters. The October Revolution was one such disaster. The World War II was another huge disaster for the country. Mm-hmm. And then the collapse of the Soviet Union pretty much topped them all because, um, uh, first of all, uh, a large proportion of the Russian population became trapped behind these artificial, newly created national boundaries. Um, and and um, and secondly, pretty much the economy fell apart, and and uh, there was just hopelessness and despair, and and a lot of people died as a result of that. There was a, a die-off, but um, it held together. Um, the the place was constructed to last, and in spite of everything, it held together and it recovered and. And now Russia has pretty much um, shrugged off this experience and is uh, moving forward uh, very successfully and very swiftly. Okay, and of course that's, you know, it is so hard to get quality information on Russia when you are inside the American bubble. I, I don't I don't know what, what people could specifically do, um, but there, there is a huge problem, which is that there's a... a 
an entire uh, industry within the United States um, that whose job, which is tasked with uh, creating a fictional version of Russia uh, and basically bad-mouthing the country. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very traditional thing. These people have been there since the Soviet times, since the Red Scare, and it's, it's just a, it, it's a continuous process that has never stopped. A lot of what they put out is just laughably wrong. Um, none of it is particularly believable, um, but people are exposed to it, and as, as a result of that, they have uh, very strange ideas about what the place is like. Right. Yeah, my, um, my brother, who is about 12 years younger than me, he went and spent six months, I believe, um, either in St. Petersburg or maybe Moscow. I, I thought I wasn't sure. Uh, studying math. He was working on his master's. And he loved it. He just loved being there. And he grew up in Santa Cruz Mountains and then lived in Fort Collins, Colorado. So he's, you know, from all sorts of liberal, hippie parts of, you know, the West Coast of America. And he went there and he would love to come back. But it wasn't easy for him to even explain to me so much how it was different than than the impressions that people are given on this side of the Atlantic. So well, yes, it it has to be lived in order to be understood. It's not something that can be communicated in in words that right. easily. Right, right. You talk in your book. The it says here that you draw on examinations of pre and post collapse societies, and you talk about typical characteristics of highly resilient communities. This book explores successful and unsuccessful adaptations in areas of finance, commerce, self-governance, social organization, culture. And you touch in upon the Icelanders, Russian mafia, Pashtuns of Central Asia, the Roma of nowhere in particular. And how do you pronounce, is it the Ik? Yeah, the, the Ik. The Ik of East Africa. So this book is drawing from all over the planet all sorts of amazing human stories and experiences. And I'm wondering if you could pick one or two that you'd like to share with us today. Well, the, the first one was on Iceland. And uh, Iceland went through a very interesting uh, experience. I, Iceland is an interesting place. It's, um, it's a country uh, that's... Uh, the size of a middling town, mm -hmm. and it's an ancient democracy. And what that translates to is that uh, the share of personal sovereignty that each Icelander has is um, uh, huge compared to, say, an American citizen, because your share of sovereignty is inversely proportional to the population size. Right. So uh, uh, an Icelander is much more of a sovereign individual than, say, an American. American and much more so than a Chinese or an Indian. Mm -hmm. uh, and what that meant is that they could uh, push through uh, measures that uh, in other places could be blocked because of um, some very rich people being in charge to a much greater extent than the rest. Mm -hmm. uh, Iceland is fairly egalitarian. And so when it turned out that Icelandic bankers uh, basically ran up private debts and then um, the international banking community tried to foist those private debts on the Icelandic public, 
What the Icelandic public did was repudiate those debts, did not declare them as public debts, refused to bail out the banks, allowed them to go bankrupt, and jailed the bankers. Mm -hmm. Now, if that had happened in the United States in 2008, then we'd have all kinds of interesting things. We might have a real economic recovery, for instance. So the the uh, 100 million or so people who are not considered unemployed because they're outside of the labor force now, they would be inside the labor force and working. For example, um, all of these uh, blood-sucking institutions on Wall Street would be gone. Goldman Sachs would disappear from the face of the earth. Bank of America would no longer exist. Mm -hmm. uh, it would be a new landscape of much smaller financial institutions but are much better regulated and don't call the shots. None of those things happened, but I Iceland, because it's small and sovereign, potentially showed the way to some other countries in the world should they ever end up in the same predicament. Well, and Iceland recovered faster than basically anyone else on the planet as a result of their choices, and yet not only did the EU stick with all their austerity measures, but the U.S. just a year and a half ago, instituted the same exact strategies on Puerto Rico. So we, I don't think we have a lack of understanding of what works. I think we have, as you were talking about with the sovereignty piece, the people who have the sovereignty are the ones who have control of what's going on. And they're the ones benefiting from this system of fleecing the public for the benefit of an extremely small number of people. And it is seemingly so hard to shift that. Do you have a good example as we go into 2018? Do you have any good examples or ideas that can inspire? Uh, yes. The first thing that Americans have to understand absolutely full and clear is that the United States is not a democracy. How you vote has nothing to do with what happens. All of the decisions are based on financial considerations not on how anyone votes. Uh, the, the decision on who became president was pretty much a lottery uh, based on the votes of a very tiny number of people. I don't remember the exact number, but it was less than a several hundred thousand, definitely less than a million. You know, a tiny, tiny percentage of the popula population gets to decide because the whole system is gerrymandered to make optimum use of money. So basically, it's uh, a game played with money bags. And and if if you think that you're going to accomplish anything at all by voting, then you're deluded. So that's the first thing to understand. Uh, the second thing to understand is that this system is basically a dead man walking. Uh, it can only exist while uh, it can continue to run the printing press. And it can only run the printing press for as long as oil is being sold for U.S. dollars. And that is no longer the case because even Saudi Arabia is starting to settle oil sales in the yuan, bypassing the dollar system. Russia is bypassing the dollar system. Uh, the world is getting ready to go back on the gold standard, uh, pretty much leaving the United States in the cold. And after that, you have this gigantic bloated Washington structure that will be completely starved of financial resources, uh, at which point it won't matter at all. One of the questions that keeps coming to mind for me over the last year and a half to two years 
but especially since um, the inauguration of the current sitting president, is the, the very real question of what are they thinking? And I mean that sincerely. What are they thinking? What we receive on our end of the glowing screen, the corporate media messaging and the narrative is probably so, so far away from the actual plans and thoughts and goals that are on the other side. Because a lot of what's going on isn't logical if the narrative was accurate, right? Um, And in particular, we have a lot of politicians who are doing everything they can to allow access to the resources of the continental U.S. Um, All of the pipelines that Obama signed um, gave permission for all of the efforts to um, erode our national parks in order to allow those pipelines to go through, all of the fights along the West Coast, in particular at the ports, where we're trying to stop them from massive exportation of coal. And it seems to me that the United States system has deeply indebted itself to other national interests around the world, and that the current system government in charge, the administration in in power, is seeking to alleviate those debts by selling off our resources to the highest bidder in order to try to manage the debt load. Does that sound at all accurate? Yes. It's it's a a collapsed cascade that started from a position of extreme wealth and power, so it took a long time to, to run down. Basically, you know, the U.S. until 1970 was uh, largest oil exporter, producer, and exporter in the world, um, and it it also uh, had the the world's strongest reserve currency. Um, in 1970, uh, oil production reached its all-time peak and started going down, and uh, the U.S. started running up deficits and, and international debts. There was a run because. The U.S. was on the gold standard. There was a run on the gold. The the U.S. went off the gold standard, and then for a long time, it basically militarily threatened anyone who tried to stop using the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency. Now, that threat has been ringing incredibly hollow recently because the U.S. can no longer even pacify Afghanistan. The, The U.S has the most expensive military in the world, but also the most incompetent one, it turns out. So nobody's even that scared anymore. And it used to be that if anybody, if if another uh, country that held uh, U.S. uh, sovereign debt tried to make use of that sovereign debt to buy up, say, stock in American companies or buy real estate or land in the U.S., that would be considered an act of war. That, That went away. So now the stance of the U.S. is, please, please, please don't dump our our debt paper because then we'd be destitute and buy anything you want. Just car it up and haul it away. We don't care. Just keep the game going a little longer. So it's not like anybody can stand in the way of all of these foreign interests just basically creating up the country and, and, and hauling it away. That's going to continue happening. It's called asset stripping. It, it is the, the last final stage of financial collapse of a country. Okay. And so we have 
a huge generation of young people and they I believe pretty much every one of their teenage years in America the the vast majority of them I think they are in a way partly because of the internet yes they're distracted by the internet they're distracted by computer games they're distracted by various things whatnot but I have a sense that the people in America who are over the age of 50 are not keeping up with what's really going on and they're less aware perhaps and the younger people the ones who are more and more saying I'm not so sure I'm comfortable with putting on debt at college or different things they realize something has to change and be done different so you mentioned that one book and that's uh, the mm, remind me of the name again Prosperous Homesteading right okay there are going to be people who don't want to live that way. What other types of ideas do you know of? Have you heard of? And um, what type of inspirational ideas would you want to offer to my young people who are looking at this world and going, ah, what do I do with this? Well, there, there are two other plans. One is uh, an, a plan that I've been working on for a while. Um, I a few years ago, I, I started thinking about the ideal boat uh, that I would like to build because it doesn't exist. So I started designing it with the help of a lot of other people who are um, veteran sailors and, and who have lived aboard and, and cruised aboard sailboats a lot so, to get ideas. And, and a project came together, and then a couple of engineers joined me, and we went through a crowdsourcing uh, stage earlier this year, raised some money. The project is really far along. Um, we got some investors on board, but it's it's called Quidnon, and it's a houseboat that is a sailboat that is designed to be comfortable to live on and is also a safe and capable uh, sailboat that you can take out on the ocean. And it is also constructed as a kit that anybody can put together with uh, moderate DIY uh, skills um, involving carpentry and, and fiberglass work. Uh, it can be put together in a, in a few weeks on a river bank or, or a lake shore or a beach. And it breaks that breaks down that barrier where you can't afford to pay for a place to live on shore, mm -hmm. um, where you can bicycle or walk to work. But there are a lot of places where you can get a job while living for free or almost free on a boat in the harbor. So this is a plan that a lot of people are interested in because it does an end run around this uh, real estate-based extortion scheme mm -hmm. uh, that isn't going to stop. So, you know, again, sailing isn't for everyone. Living on board a boat isn't for everyone. You mm -hmm. have to be a pretty together person with, with some uh, uh, useful skills uh, in order to to uh, embrace that lifestyle, but quite a few people can. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm pushing forward with this project. And then another general consideration is, um, see, what's going to happen to the U.S. is everybody's going to be poor. It's already happening. Mm -hmm. uh, the middle class is going to evaporate. Everybody is pretty much going to, to be lumpen proletariat working class without a job. And, you know, that, that, that's unstoppable. But the problem is that the place is expensive. It's overbuilt. It doesn't really have uh, all of the right stuff you need for, for self-sufficiency. Self -sufficiency. 
for surviving on a shoestring budget. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the bums have a hard time in the U.S. Uh, the police state is far too big and far too domineering. Um, and, and there are just a lot of problems. There's crime, there are a lot of guns, just lots of issues. And the whole problem is that it takes experience to learn how to live well while being poor or moderately well. Mm -hmm. But if you look around the world, there are countries where people are much poorer than the average American, and they're living so much better than the average American, so much less stress. They have to work so little for the little that they need. They have they have kids and they bring them up, and, and there isn't really a problem with that. So one of the ways to beat the system is to just leave the country, leave the U.S. behind. It doesn't really even matter where you go as long as it's not one of the developed countries. Hmm. Just about anywhere where you can eventually learn how to fit in could be better, potentially, than the United States. Because they have a culture that supports a low resource using lifestyle. Yes, and where people help help each other and where they they don't depend on these incredibly intricate overbuilt technologically complex systems. In the US, it's like falling out of a skyscraper, you know. So what you want to do is move to a place where uh collapse is like falling out of uh, a one-story building. Right. Right, right. Actually, that's a really good point. Hmm. Now, see, you got me thinking <laughs> all sorts of interesting thoughts. So you touched upon the concept of anarchy in this book, and I really want to make sure we get into that because I, I, I can feel my cultural um, uh, hackles go up or my, my anxiety because in America, that word has definitely been cast as a very, very dangerous line of thought in a very scary place. Well, anarchy is generally or often used as a synonym for chaos or disorder. And what it really is is absence of hierarchy. And the reason it's being used as a synonym for chaos and disorder is because the hierarchy hates it. Mm -hmm. The hierarchy hates anything that reduces their power over you. And so you, you can't just frontally assault the hierarchy because it's powerful. Um, instead, what you have to do is become illegible to it, become sketchy, um, uh, develop horizontal personal relationships with other people and use them, you know, instead of using official channels. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of there are a lot of anarchic ways of organizing yourself that preclude uh, there being a hierarchy. So, for instance, you 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 uh, you build hierarchical systems by uh, forming uh, companies, right? Um, there's always a management layer, etc. But if you if you're just a, a, a sole operator and you work with other sole operators and you actually refuse to work with anyone you don't personally know or aren't related to, then uh, hierarchy can't really make too many inroads. And the other thing to understand is, is uh, uh, hierarchy is very inefficient because you end up uh, uh, with a bunch of senior lunch eaters at the top who mm -hmm. get a disproportionate share of everything. And if, if you cut them out, if you, if you cut out all of these um, people at the top and all the middlemen and everyone else, 
then you automatically keep a bigger share for yourself and, and you win. Um, another thing to understand is that hierarchy is extremely unusual in nature. Uh, most natural systems of how anything, uh, flocks of birds, schools of fish, you name it, work, uh, they're all anarchically organized. There are very few hierarchies. Um, you know, some, some social primates have, have hierarchies, and that's probably where we get it. But it's not really all that necessary. That's so actually those things to keep in mind. That's actually a really great point. All animals in the natural world coordinate together when they coordinate together by individual choice, not by coercion. You don't have, I mean, you know, the rooster is not in charge of the hens at all. You know, I mean, the rooster actually is following the girls around and the girls are doing what they want to do together as a group. And you, so that's actually such a good reminder. So often you suddenly realize, wait a minute, there's, there's beautiful, logical, powerful, amazing thoughts over here that make a lot of sense and they feel really good. Well, actually, it's a two-way street because if you tell people that they can stop thinking now, they'll be very happy about it because thought is so painful for so many people. They would rather be told what to think than to think for themselves because there's so much uncertainty about potentially being wrong and trial and error and all of that. Most people just want to be told what to do. Uh, but the thing to keep in mind that, uh, you know, if, if you believe that a collapse is occurring, and if, if you look at what's happening, it's very hard not to believe that, uh, if you actually look at it, then you have to keep in mind that uh, what happens in, in any sort of a collapse, and sometimes even outside of a collapse, is a lot of attrition. Now, guess, guess who is dispensable? It's the people who don't think for themselves. And guess who will somehow, by hook or by crook, by crook, probably manage to make it? It's the people who refuse to not think for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's that, that kind of attrition is, is fairly typical. And in some situations, you are tuned into it explicitly. In engineering school, the dean addressing the freshman class said, actually, that was my experience, look to your left, look to your right, Next semester, one of these people won't be around because they will have flunked out. Yeah, because it's 75% attrition, attrition rate in engineering. Uh, most students don't make it. Wow. And, and you, you keep that in mind. And, and, and you, you realize that the way you're going to make it is not by doing the same thing as everyone else. What's a positive word that's like volatility? I feel like the change is just going to be um, a lot of moving parts and the more fluidly a person can adapt to what's going on and the more creatively they can respond, those people are perhaps the ones who will thrive best in the times to come ahead of us. Well, there, there, there are a couple of things. One, one is um, you, you have to keep in mind that you know, things are not going to stay the same. So um, long-term planning is probably not such a great idea. Right. Um, another is that you have to have a resource cushion. So a lot of people in the U.S. they 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 live by by credit cards, and 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 they have zero savings. They have lots of debt. They have negative net worth. Okay, that's a prescription for disaster. Uh, you actually have to have a stockpile. You have to be able to to uh, to kind of drift along for a while while mm -hmm. something new materializes. Um, you know, the precarious existence is just untenable. 
and you have to have resources far in excess of your needs. If if your if your resources exactly match your needs and your resources dwindle even a little bit, then you're in big trouble all of a sudden. Right. But if but if, if you're making twice the money you spend and you put half of your money away, then you'll probably be fine. Right. Recently, I don't know if it was in your book or somewhere else, I've been doing a lot of reading lately, um, someone was making the comment that it was a very good idea to get out of debt. You know, so in some way, I wonder if the person who works really hard in this system to pay off all of their debts and then the system collapses, the question is, do they actually have value compared to the other person who might run up a bunch of credit cards and have a bunch of debt and then say, well, things are bad enough. I'm just not going to pay it off. Too bad. I'll file bankruptcy. You know, so I'm a little curious if you have thoughts about that. Well, I, I think that uh, not having debt, not having these uh, encumberments um, frees your mind, first of all. Um, and that, that is already a positive effect. Mm -hmm. uh, it makes you physically free. So if you decide that you want to leave the country for six months, nobody's going to notice. No, no debt collectors are going to come looking for you. Nothing right. will happen. Mm -hmm. You will just disappear. And then maybe you'll reappear. You don't even have to have a, you know, a fixed abode or, you know, you can be technically homeless. There are a lot of people like that in the world. They, you know, they, they, they spent time on the beach somewhere in Thailand. They, they, they work some internet job, maybe two days a week, and they're filthy rich by local standards. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a good way to be. If they had debt, none of that would be possible. Mm-hmm. Right, right. You know, once again, the big question, do you want to own land and do you want to have holdings and things you are in charge of, or do you just sell it all, throw the backpack on, and head out as a human on the planet? Interesting. Well, look, if, if you pay tax on something, you don't own it. You're renting it from the government. It's, mm -hmm. You have to keep that in mind. So nobody in the U.S. owns their property. They're mm -hmm. renting it from the government. If they stop paying the rent to the government, the property gets taken away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even if you're still paying the rent, if the um, people of your society decide they need you know, a light rail to go through your neighborhood or they need to do something of uh, imminent domain, I think is what it's called, so, yeah, yeah, but it's yeah, interesting. Yeah, a little money. It was really interesting last year. Um, the Republican Party platform for the presidential election was very, very clear that eminent domain was an enemy of the people, and the Republican Party completely was against it, and it was not okay, right? Meanwhile, um, the Dakota Access Pipeline, which was – Apple, a lot of people were dealing with trying to stop that up in North Dakota and whatnot. It exists going from the top of the country down to, I think, Louisiana. It exists because several Republican governors intentionally used eminent domain to go in and force Americans to sell their land for that pipeline. So, yeah. Yeah, well, it's a terrible problem. I mean, um, China wants to buy refined products and, and Louisiana doesn't really have a business plan unless they can export refined products and the only way they can get the crude oil is from Canada. It's mm -hmm. pathetic. So they need that that, that pipeline or right. everybody goes broke. Right. It's sad. No one living right now in this blip has actually really gotten it that once this is gone, it never comes back forever. Forever. Humans on earth won't have fossil fuels because it's, it's going to, you know, it's, it's a poof, it's gone. And I don't think yeah, people... No, no, that's, that's 
That's true. There will be pockets of uh, mining and manufacturing in the world. Uh, there will be some manufactured products. They, they, there might even be some very interesting and fancy ones, communications equipment, some some amount of compute, computing equipment will probably still be around, but most people won't even know it exists, mm-hmm. most people around the world. Mm-hmm. Right now, too, this came up when everyone started paying attention to what happened when Hurricane Maria and Hurricane Irma hit um, Puerto Rico and also the Virgin Islands and a number of other places, and people were like, Think about that in this modern world, we're so used to electricity and 80, 90% of the people have no electricity and it could be four, five, six months before they get it. And so I'm doing research and, and working on this issue and writing things about it. And I came across this really interesting piece of information that right now on planet Earth, about 2 billion humans live without electricity on Earth today. Their norm. Mm-hmm. The, the norm, just everything, two billion. And that was another one of those watershed moments where you're like, oh, we're freaking out over here. And yet two billion people, this is their norm. And that, I think, is that example you were giving that, you know, Puerto Rico, the people in Puerto Rico sort of fell off the top of the skyscraper rather than falling off the first floor. Yes, it's fairly typical in many parts of the world to get a few hours of electricity a day. So you can charge up your cell phone and 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 get on the internet and and maybe uh, um, do a few other things, uh, um, do your laundry, and then it, mm-hmm. then it's off again. Um, that's not untypical, um, right. and that's going to be happening in more and more places in the world. But in places where you can't get up to where you live if the elevator isn't running, uh, people will be in really sad shape or when they have blackouts in the summer, massive numbers of people die from the heat just because we created an air conditioning dependent building code. Well, the people who had it easy, um, you know, I spent a while living in the South and Savannah, Charleston, Buford, places like that. And the old parts of town are beautifully built to survive without air conditioning. But um, the poor people had it kind of bad. and, And the moment they could get air conditioning, they did. And they wouldn't want to be without it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there is this uh, kind of uh, uh, tendency to want to leave the past behind and, and never mind the future. Mm-hmm. The last thing we're going to touch upon here today is the shrinking of the technosphere. Go ahead and explain to our listeners what you mean by that. That was my last book uh, published by New Society Publishers in, in British Columbia. And uh, the title is Shrinking the Technosphere. And the premise of the book is that the technology uh, realm has expanded to the point where we are no longer in charge of it. Humans are not really in control. Uh, You know, there's some technicians managing it, but they don't really call the shots. You know, maybe some company CEOs, you know, have some some say in what happens. But, you know, if if they... uh, if the, if they try to rock the system or oppose it, then they become non-competitive, and and so it it this this technosphere is sort of like uh, analogous to Gaia, the biosphere, and it's becoming sentient, and it doesn't have our interests in mind. It in fact it doesn't really hate humans because they're willful and 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 hard to manage and hard to make humans work like machines, which is what the technosphere wants to do. So it tries to replace us with robots as much as possible, 
And when it can't, it tries to make us act like robots by making us follow um, um, fo follow explicit written instructions. And it also tries to uh, mediate all of our interactions using uh, technology, us using widgets. So uh, we are no longer allowed to uh, deal with each other face to face. We have to use uh, uh, a, a smartphone or something like that. Um, we no longer can just go out and find our mates, however we used to do it, um, talking to friends, going out to bars. But instead, we have to use some some internet tool to do it, which means that there are computer algorithms uh, that are breeding us like cattle. Um, in fact, I, I I know for a fact that a certain dating company uh, that that I uh, I know about, I won't mention by name, but mm -hmm. that what they do is they maximize their algorithm for maximum throughput, not for happiness or for matching people. They, they do the worst possible job they can get away with for matching people as long as they match as many of them as possible. So that's kind of our future is, you know, as cattle managed by machines, unless we consciously restrict our technology choices to just the necessary bits of technology, um, maybe some stuff for, you know, communication, uh, we need some technology for cooking food. We need a bit of t technology for shelter and transportation and and, and uh, a few other things. But uh, what we need to do is actually push back against this technological realm because in the end, it's just going to kill us. Have you heard about Cambridge Analytica? Um, I believe so, but it uh, doesn't really ring a bell. Right, right. It is the... Um company that figured out how to use social media analytical type of data in order to predict and control human actions and behaviors. And they were hired by um, Donald Trump to preside over his run for the presidency. Mm. And, no, I haven't heard about them. Yeah. And it... it you should check them out. We can talk a little bit more about it later, but it's, I've been, it's not at all a hidden thing. They're very blatant about what they do. They promote themselves very aggressively. You can find them on the internet and read up about them. They do things like practically TED Talks and all sorts of stuff like that. But it's fascinating. Uh, one of the women mm -hmm. who is in charge of their, I think it's the data, I can't remember her exact title. She gave a presentation at, it's called Decon, I think, uh, like digital con or something in Europe. And she was presenting on mm -hmm. what information they were using during the campaign. And the people in the room were mostly like Europeans. The presenter was from Germany. And like the reaction of the crowd to lots of the things that she was saying, people were asking, is this legal? You, you aren't doing this in our countries, are you? I mean, it was people were really shocked by some of the stuff that that is legal in America, at least, that this company is doing. Well, I think it's it, it adds up. It, it, they're not controlling us in, in any beneficial way to us or to the technosphere, really, at this point. It's sort of human, stupid human tricks, largely. Mm -hmm. like, it doesn't make any difference who is elected president of the United States. I can promise you that. It makes no difference at all. It's just a waste of money. Dimitri, I really appreciate your time today. You're a blogger. What? Tell our audience really quickly, um, how can they check 
and on your blog. Where do they find you? They can find out about everything that I do by going to Club Orlov, that's C-L-U-B-O-R-L-O-V dot blogspot dot com. And that's our show, folks. My name is March Twisdale, and you've been listening to my interview with Dmitry Orlov. I'd like to thank you for listening to Prose Poetry and Purpose, where my guests share how they hope to inspire positive change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time.